Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening. Welcome, welcome everybody to the LSE. Welcome everyone in the theatre and those in our online audience. My name is Jeffrey Schweroth. I'm a professor of international political economy here at the LSE. I'm also head of the Department of International Relations. I am very pleased to be here to welcome our speakers and the audience, online and in person, to the Sheikh Zayed Theater for the launch of Professor Peter Trubowitz and Professor Brian Bogun's latest book, Geopolitics and Democracy, The Western Liberal Order from Foundation to Fracture. The book offers a novel explanation of why the liberal international order has buckled under the pressures of anti-globalist political forces in recent years. Tonight, we have the pleasure of welcoming a leading panel of experts to discuss the book and the broader implications for democracy and the liberal order going forward. Allow me first to introduce the panel. First on my left is Professor Peter Trubowitz, Professor of International Relations and Director of the Phelan U.S. Center at the LSE, and he is also an Associate Fellow at Chatham House. Next to him is Professor Brian Bogun, who is Professor of International and Comparative Political Economy in the Department of Political Science and Director of the Center for European Studies at the University of Amsterdam. Next to him is Professor uh, Michael Cox, who is Emeritus Professor of International Relations at the LSE, followed by Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri, who is the director of the U.S. and America's program and dean of Queen Elizabeth II Academy for Leadership and International Affairs at Chatham House. And then she is followed by Professor Sarah Holbert, who is the Sutherland Chair in, Inter in European Institutions and Professor in the Department of Government at LSE. Tonight, as usual, there will be a chance for you in the audience, in person and in online, to put your questions to the panel. For Twitter users this evening, the hashtag for tonight's events is hashtag LSE anti-globalism. This event is being recorded. It <laughs> 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 will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. And I'm going to start this evening by inviting uh, both Peter and Brian to first start our panel discussion. So, Jeff, thank you very much for uh, that introduction. It's great to be with here uh, this evening with all of you um, and to have an opportunity to uh, talk about our book. I want to thank the IR department for um, organizing this event. And I must say, it's, it's great to be doing this with, um, with Brian in person. This is a COVID book. Um, and we spent a lot of time talking and analyzing data over Zoom, so it's really nice to actually be doing this in person. Um, so the book is about um, the evolution of what we call uh, the Western-led liberal order from the post-war era uh, to the present. And it's about Western democracy's um, support for liberal internationalism um, and why its support for liberal internationalism 
was so much more robust and sure-footed uh, during the Cold War than it is today, and how and why things kind of went wrong for the West. Um, and our central claim is that Western governments um, overreached, uh, that starting in the 1990s, um, they began pursuing foreign policies that were increasingly at odds with what their publics were willing to support. And that this set in motion a kind of train of uh, events, a process, um, that, um, uh, that we see today in the anti-globalist backlash that's playing out in kind of one democracy uh, after another. So what we're going to do for the next, it looks like, 18 minutes, <laughs> is um, summarize the main steps in the argument. Uh, and we're going to try to do this tag team, um, drawing on some of the supporting, kind of a fraction, really, of the supporting empirical um, work along the way to try to give you a sense of how the argument works and also an opportunity you'd see what we're basing um, our claims on. Now, much of what we say in the book um, flows from a model of um, Western statecraft um, that we use to try to clarify the nature of the strategic debate um, in the West. Frankly, this is not only true of the West, but in the West over foreign policy. And it, com oh, you already did. It, it combines, um, it's like a mind melt. Um, it, it combines two dimensions of foreign policy that are rarely put together. So one, that scholars of international security tend to stress. Um, and the other, uh, one that IPE scholars, scholars of international political economy, uh, emphasize. And we call these two dimensions power and partnership. And by power, we mean military power and the extent to which governments, um, political parties, uh, and citizens favor investing in military capabilities. By partnership, what we mean is support for trade liberalization, um, international cooperation, and multilateral governing arrangements like the EU and the WTO. So what we do is we use this framework to locate and track governments, parties, um, and voters' foreign policy preferences over time on each of these dimensions of, of statecraft. And the sample includes 24 Western democracies, some 400 Western uh, parties in these countries voting publics or electorates. And it spans, the analysis spans uh, 70 years, roughly 70 years, from the post-war uh, era through the Cold War um, and down to the present moment. And what we show is that during the Cold War, most Western governments, most parties, and most voters coalesced either in or near the upper right quadrant that we call, that we define as liberal internationalism. In most cases, Japan um, is a notable exception, but in most cases, they found common cause in foreign policies that relied on partnership to expand international trade and cooperation, um, at least within the West, um, and on power to check and contain 
uh, and balance against Soviet communism. And that pattern lasted until the 1990s when it started to break down, as Western governments and voters began to move in opposite directions. And this next slide captures, um, begins to capture this movement, this first slide here. Um, measured governments of policies supporting um, international partnership and military power, uh, starting in 1970, because this particular indicator starts in 1970. Um, um, and, and what you can see is that um, in the 1990s, you begin to see movement um, in the case of the United States and the EU, and actually also in the case of Japan, although Japan, I mean, if Japan was over here, we would know there was a real problem with the data, given that Japan never really spent very much on uh, defense as a percentage of GDP, but Japan begins to move up. And so they all begin to move up into or towards this quadrant that we're calling um, globalism. Um, the next slide measures Western voters' support for political parties that favor globalization. And that's our proxy for public opinion. Um, and here what we see is Western voters moving towards the nationalist quadrant, again starting in the 1990s. Japan is always a difficult case, and it moves all around the space, but nevertheless, we see Japan also moving down in this direction. Um, in both cases, in both of these two figures that I just showed you, one for government policy and one for voters, most of the action, most of the movement is actually up or down the vertical axis. With governments moving up, uh, the partnership axis, and with voters moving down the axis. And this double movement, to borrow a phrase, is easier to see when we look at this next slide, which juxtaposes these two indicators of partnership. The solid line in the three figures measures EU, Japanese, and US uh, government support for globalization. And the dotted line measures voter support for globalization. <clears throat> um, and what you see is that <clears throat> governments and their publics were largely in sync over um, foreign policies favoring greater economic integration and international cooperation during the Cold War. Indeed, if anything, during this period, Western public support runs ahead of their governments, what their governments were trying to do on this dimension. As a political theorist, uh, Robert Dahl said in, uh, put it in 1964, Western democracies had a surplus of consensus, and this is reflected in this graph. Now, despite occasional challenges, there was a big one in the 1970s, this consensus nevertheless held until the 1990s when things, as you can see, begin to unravel. While Western government support continues to climb in the 1990s, it levels off in the 2000s, but public support falls off very sharply and continues to decline. And on average, 
across all the Western democracies between 1992 and 2017, it falls by nearly one half. And this drop-off is very clear in the EU and the US case. Japan, it comes later, as you can see. But nevertheless, by the 2000s, you start to see this divergence or this gap. It holds here, too. In each case, the story is pretty much the same. Western governments got themselves too far over their skis. Or to put it in IR speed, they became strategically overextended. Now, it's not a classic case of overextension, um, where a country's heavy reliance on military power outstrips its economic capabilities. This is really a story more about how Western leaders' reliance on trade liberalization and multilateral governance um, came to exceed what their publics, I forgot I wasn't wired. Um, <laughs> so um, I teach wired, and so I just assumed I was wired. Um, at any rate, that it came to exceed what voting publics <laughs> were willing <laughs> what voting publics were willing to support. So the question is, how did this happen? And why did it occur when it did? And the short answer to this is that the Cold War ended. Brian's going to give you the longer answer in about five to seven minutes. <laughs> I'll try not to wander, even though that is, is, is my way uh, as well. Uh, thanks. Um, so the, the longish answer to why you see this uh, disjuncture between the kinds of parties and the party orientations that voters are supporting versus what governments are providing and for that matter what mainstream parties are selling when it comes to this combination of, of partnership and power, this sort of liberal international combination. What we think explains that, or at least explains an important part of that, is in a sense a combination of the domestic political economy world and the international security world. And in particular for us, we want to look at the combination of social protection, social, socioeconomic, in a sense, embedding of the economy in the global economy in, in society using public policy interventions that can make a difference to address the risks of openness, the insecurities that are associated with openness, and for that matter, the risks and insecurities associated with significant investments in military preparedness. That's what you see on the left-hand side. This is a very um, uh, rough portrait of the kind of data that we're looking at, but the idea is that if you look at a measure of social security transfers, which is a very encompassing measure of transfers, a particular part of the welfare state, and you set that against the level of support for uh, liberal internationalism, um, uh, and you do that looking at government support, as is the case here, but you could also do it for parties or for voters, you see this positive relationship. And that positive relationship is an echo of a very well understood, very well trodden uh, sort of terrain in international political economy that says that, well, if there is economic openness and we know that that brings risks, it makes sense for societies to try to invest in social protection to indemnify citizens from that risk. And that's, in a sense, a recipe for making domestic stability and economic openness, political openness, um, consistent. 
And what we do in our, our book is say that this concept that has been labeled embedded liberalism is broader. For us, it's also embedded liberal internationalism. It's an embrace that includes the combination of power and partnership. On the right-hand side, you see the relationship between a measure of geopolitical risk that a given country faces on average, composed of things like how much hostility is there at their borders, uh, how, much, how many militarized interna international disputes are there uh, in, their, in their neighborhood, etc. Uh, is, there, is, is there a threat of nuclear war? <laughs> uh, these kinds of things. It's a scale of geopolitical threat. And again, on the vertical in, um, axis is this measure of, of support for liberal internationalism. And here again, you see that sort of positive relationship. And the logic here is more novel in our work. Right? The logic is that the Cold War was a disciplining force in politics and also political economy. It disciplined radical extreme voices who might want you know, very serious military power and no social embedding, or uh, people like Goldwater, uh, Barry Goldwater in the election of 1964. Uh, uh, the Cold War made people really aware that you cannot go that far without risking nuclear Armageddon. And it disciplined the sort of more lefty voices who would say it should all be about social protection. We don't need to do anything about military preparedness. I don't know, let's say like uh, McGovern in 1972, um, in the similar direction, that you cannot give up on the combination of liberal internationalism. And it's, and it's because of the need to try to, to balance, both externally and internally, the power and threat of the Soviet Union. And our main point is that however harmonious this picture may look, if you average out all the different country years in our data and you focus on particularly the pre-Cold War period, if you look at the trends after um, the 1960s, 1970s, you actually see an important, in a sense, breakdown of that combination. We see on the one hand uh, a, a flattening out in investment in social transfers, particularly if you look at measures of social welfare effort that take into account actual exposure to economic risks or insecurity. So for instance, if you normalize the social transfers by the unemployment rate or take it as a measure of uh, per unemployed person, or for the ma that matter, if you took it as a, as a share of uh, trade uh, dependency, then you see a significant drop in the investment in the protection of, uh, of, of citizens. And on the right, you actually see this significant decline, particularly in the Cold War period, and the Cold War, I should say, where uh, exposure to geopolitical risk, geopolitical threat, declined. That was a period of geopolitical slack. That's the end of the Cold War. And what that meant for us is that you had a lot more room for political parties, and for that matter, voters, to rethink what the setting is within which they're making their choices about grand strategy, voting for particular parties and the positions parties take with respect to grand, grand strategy. Um, and what you see in the graph here is what actually the position taking was of these different party families that are central to our story. You see the radical right in orange moving quite precipitously towards an embrace of, in a sense, anti-globalization nationalism. You see the radical left certainly much less pro-globalization than are the mainstream parties, but they do soften that position. But in a way, the most striking point is that the mainstream parties, the Social Democrats, the Christian Democrats, et cetera, they stay up in that area. They don't seem to change despite these big epochal changes in the structure of the economy, social embedding of liberalism, or for that matter, the end of the Cold War. And what we find is that that is 
partly what made, made um, yeah, a recipe for bad news for a lot of mainstream parties. Turns out that the parties that were pushing uh, a, a pro-globalization position, that turns out to be a vote loser um, after the 1990s. Whereas um, those parties, like the radical right parties that embrace um, anti-globalization, that became a vote winner. And so there shouldn't be a huge surprise that there's been a secular decline in the, 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 the vote share of, of mainstream parties and, a, and an increase, particularly of uh, the, the electoral cloud of, of radical right parties. Because of time, I'm not going to be able to say something about what matters to the next step in our argument, but let me just highlight one in one sentence what we, we, we do in the book. Um, after chronicling these problems for the domestic political economic foundations of liberal internationalism, we point out that that same set of dynamics undermines the liberal international system itself at the margin. For instance, lowering the, the, the tendency of non-Western governments to vote with a Western government in the UN General Assembly. And we, do, we have similar analyses that look at the extent of economic globalization, that look at uh, the strength of delegation in international organizations, and we come to the conclusion that this is really bad news for um, uh, liberal internationalism as a, as a geopolitical uh, stance. So Peter's going to conclude things for us. Well, it looks like we have two minutes. Um, and so uh, we, we close out the book um, by um, considering the ideas that are being put forth or the ideas that are likely to shape the coming debate over Western strategy, um, how the West might bring its international ends or ambitions and its domestic political means into balance, how it might close that gap that we showed you. And I'm just going to briefly mention, I think, the three main options that are out there that are part of the discussion, uh, uh, certainly in Washington, uh, but in other Western capitals, and that are being tracked and followed. I'm just back from three weeks in, in China, being tracked very carefully uh, in, 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 in Beijing. One option is for the West to retrench internationally, basically to adopt more limited expectations about what can be achieved internationally and to rely on less costly means to maintain, um, uh, you know, to promote uh, more narrowly defined uh, ends and call it what you will. Some in the literature call it retrenchment, others restraint, isolationism. The idea has gained a lot of attraction, a lot of, a lot of traction in recent years. Um, and um, they all, all the different, there are many different versions of the argument, but they all boil down to the same thing, that less is more for the West. A second approach involves focusing on a common threat, to deflect anti-globalist pressures at home, and to restore a common sense of international purpose. And here, too, there are different versions of the argument that are out there. But the one that is getting the most traction, especially in Washington, focuses directly on the China challenge. And simply put, the idea is to raise the international stakes by urging greater power confrontation with China to rekindle Western solidarity and domestic support for international engagement. There is a third strategy, and I'm going to stop on this. It starts by reimagining 
the relationship between foreign policy and domestic policy. By looking for new ways to reconnect policies in the international realm to recognizable benefits at home for working families. Western democracies can't return to the post-war liberal order, but they can search for new ways to renew and update their commitment to economic security and inclusive growth through innovation, investment, and, and sustainable development. And in our view, we're happy to deal, talk about this a bit more in the Q&A, this is the path that offers the most promise, the most hope, but it's also politically the one that is likely to get the most traction. And we'll leave it right there. Great, thank you, uh, Peter and Brian. I'm gonna turn it over now to Professor Mick Cox. Okay, thanks very much for the uh, presentation and, and, and thanks for organizing this event. When I was sitting here listening, I thought, bring back the Cold War. <laughs> God, we're missing you. I was beginning to sound like John Mearsheimer too, here we go. Um, it's a great book. I mean, one of the things that you do in the book, and I'll be complimentary now because you know I'm going to hit you below the belt in a moment, um, is what you do very, very well, I think, is bring together political science and IR. And, and I know, you know in the States that is not a separation, but in this country I think it is. And I think what you do very, very well is, is bring together those, those two areas. And I think that's so important. You know, It's not because IR has gone completely anti-empirical, but it has. Uh, but it is also the fact that uh, you, you, do, you do need the, the, you know, the facts, you, know, you, need, you need the stats. And I think that gives, lends to your book an enormous amount of, of strength and depth, which I think is very, very, very commendable. Um, the other thing is, of course, I mean, you, you would be the first to admit, and I'm going to point out, it's not the, you're not the first authors to point out that there's trouble in the in liberal international order. I mean, uh, I'm long enough in the tooth to remember. In fact, I think the very first book, if I can remember, um, and you may mention this in your bibliography, I didn't notice, it was, a, was what I thought a book which influenced me enormously by Danny Roderick. I don't know if you, can, you guys remember that one, but back in 1997, 1998, Danny was arguing then, and has consistently argued since, um, about has globalisation gone too far. And he put forward, I'm not saying it's an identical thesis or anything like that, but he put forward a thesis which was, you know, like yours, kind of wonderful in its simplicity, because simplicity is a way to get to complexity in a way. And I think that's a great way of putting it. You know, what, what, what Danny Roderick said there, if you remember, the globalisation in particularly neoliberal form it was then taking, you know, was leading to social fragmentation and social disintegration. I'd also mention another book which influenced me, and I hope Tony Giddens is listening. Uh, I thought Tony's book, written in 1999 on Runaway World, was a, was a, was a magnificent attempt at synthesis as well, and it needs to be remembered. Because what Tony did in that book, I thought particularly well, was to show that the runaway world is runaway, it is fragmenting, and we don't have very much control over it. And I thought, again, that's... And, and I got echoes of both Roderick and, and, and Tony in, 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 in your book. I think, however, you, you take it a bit further. And in a way, I love, the, I love the term, A Bridge Too Far. It could have been the subtitle for the book, by the way. It's a good film, too, but that's another question. Um, I think you do three things, uh, which takes it further. I mean, I think what you do is you bring back agency. 
You know, I mean, that's a very Tony Giddens thing to say, of course, but you do bring back agency, which I think is very important. You know, because so much of the debate about globalization is consequences, it's like a machine theory. You know, it just goes on and on and on. Nobody's got any control over it. Nobody's got any choices at any, any point in time. It just goes on and on and on, like the machine. And what, what you do is bring back agency into it and talk about bad choices and missteps uh, along the way. And I think that is very, very important because it, in a sense, gives a hope for the future. I mean, you know, you're, you know, I can be very, very pessimistic at the best of times, but your book at least says, look, there may be a way out of this with different choices and not taking missteps. Do no harm. Do less harm than has been done in the past. And I think that, that is very important because we need hope. We do need hope. Come on, that's part of what we should be doing, not just analysing, but thinking forward. Um, I liked it too, of course, I'm bound to say this as an old Cold War historian, so to speak. I like the way you linked it to the end of the Cold War. I mean, come on, bring it back in again. You know, again, too much of the debate about globalisation, I feel, not all of it, but some of it, was really kind of in, in abstracted from geopolitics in many, many ways. And Peter, you know me, and I, we've talked about this before. And also the whole issue of liberal triumphalism, which followed that. I mean, I don't want to quote poor old Francis Fukuyama again. He's been quoted too many times over the last 30 years for writing a rather peculiar article on the end of history. But the liberal triumphalism was, was part of that, and there's no point. Now, Clinton may have also been part of that. And, you know, so that, I think, is game very, very important to bring back, but certainly bringing back in the end of the Cold War. The third point I'll make, and I'll, I'll make one or two points to that and then conclude. 20 years later, since Tony wrote his book on Runaway World, or 25 years later or whatever, when uh, Danny Roderick wrote his book on has globalisation gone too far. I mean, how much worse has it got, though? I mean, not, but reading through your book, I kind of thought, this is, this is kind of nice. But to me, and again, maybe a function of age, <laughs> or whatever, function of living standards going down, I kind of felt that the, the, it's, it's a lot worse. It may be even worse than I think you're saying in the book. That's my kind of take on it, a little bit. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, Sarah. You're not, you know, I mean, we've gone through what? We've gone through 2008, which wasn't great. Um, you know, he said. Um, we've gone through 2016. There may be some people in the audience who supported Brexit. Well done. Um, but 2000, <laughs> now I know, I know some good friends of mine, and I won't name them. But, you know, you went through 2016, where in one year you've got Brexit and Trump. Um, which, of course, you do deal with. And then that large, that large uh, populist wave which followed. In fact, I'd probably say why I think it's a lot worse is that geopolitics has come back, but it's come back in ways that none of us, well, some of us might, but I think most of us did not fully anticipate. I mean, I don't just mean the long-term impact of COVID. I mean, I, I might have said more in your book about, you say it's a COVID book, but I think the consequence of that on, on geopolitics and, and on the world and supply chains and on globalisation, on the liberal orders, is actually pretty profound and, and pretty down, downbeat. And I think it's still going on, whatever we say. You mentioned the China-US conflict. I think it, I would actually say it's, it's even worse than you're implying. I don't think it's a question of bringing back China to unite us. It is that China and the US are now loggerheads with each other with no possibility whatsoever of any deal between them. And simple, I think it's as simple as that. That's my take on that. I do really take that view. And that, again, I think adds to a real crisis of the, of the international order and the liberal international order, which you mentioned. And then the third thing that uh, the CIA at least got right this time, <laughs> you've got nearly everything else wrong, was the war in Ukraine. 
And also the very close relationship that now exists, and I was talking about this this afternoon at the House of Commons, the very close relationship that now exists between China and Russia. Now, however you, however you want to characterise or caricature that relationship, axis of convenience or whatever you want to call it, it is a very tight relationship. And it is quite clear that in the process of Xi and Putin together have articulated a, a vision of a new world. You know, we can't get away from that. Now, a lot of people sitting in Western capitals say, well, that's just a nonsensical vision. But if you're sitting in the global south, or, you know, or you're sitting in South Africa, or you're sitting in other parts of the world rather than the, the advanced capitalist West, then part of that vision sounds more credible. It really does. And it's a vision which sort of says, well, the West is down and going down. And that we together, and they, they said that in their last meeting in March, in, uh, when G, President Xi went to, to Moscow, we together will construct together with the Global South, effectively, BRICS organisation, all that. We will construct together an entirely different vision of um, what the liberal world order was, as defined by the US and the EU. Now we can easily put, put that to one side and say, well, that's a lot of nonsense. In essence, it doesn't add up to much. And the West has got lots of strengths, and I, I get that. But I think we would, and I don't think you do in your book, but I'm just mentioning this as a kind of, again, to make everybody feel pretty miserable and suicidal. I feel that there is a sense in which what they've articulated together, both before the war, but, a, but it's not gone away during it. In fact, you, you saw the last meeting between President Xi and Putin. It's actually, it's actually got more radicalised and more globalised. And so the vision now is not just that we have to stick together because we're two authoritarian countries. It is that we now have a vision, a view of what a new world order will look like. It'll be multipolar, not liberal, and there'll be a whole bunch of countries out there like Brazil, South Africa, the Global South, countries in South America, countries that don't like the United States, don't like the liberal order, don't like Western democracy, who will coalesce together to challenge them. That's where the geopolitics really does start to come back in again, and I'm really pleased it's actually in your title. Anyway, I'll end there. Congratulations on the book, and uh, I look forward to what our other colleagues have to say. Thanks very much for listening. Okay, thanks, Mick. I'm going to pass it over now to uh, Professor Sarah Holbert. In other words, the sort of public constraint is perhaps not as great as we could fear. So um, I want to first, uh, I couldn't summarize your book as brilliantly as you have just done, but I've thought of, I wanted to sort of give an image. And one of the things that you talked about and is in the book uh, is this idea of overreach of the West. So the West has gone too far in establishing this liberal international order, and there's a public backlash. That's at the core of it. And it made me think of this poster, which is one of my, uh, one of my many favorite posters. I study referendums, so I love posters. <laughs> and this is, and it's sort of, it's exactly because this big scary man, he is the liberal international order, in this case the EU, and uh, this is, was put forward in 92 in the campaign against the Maastricht Treaty, which was much more than just the Maastricht Treaty. It really was this sort of the fact that you know, Danish citizens were taken in by the capitalists, by the militarists, by the, all these things that encompasses. And I thought, and this is a very famous Danish children's uh, author and illustrator who, 
who, uh, who uh, did this poster for this movement against the EU. So this is no to the EU. And that's very much what you, you see in your book. This is at the cusp of when, uh, when there was this shift. So, uh, so I thought this was a, a, a neat illustration in my mind when I was reading your book. So, you know, I find your, the argument in your book just very compelling, which makes my job as a discussant uh, very hard, because I, I really was uh, uh, taken in by it. I thought it's just, you know, it's, as Mick was saying, brilliantly simple, yet also mm. addresses a very, very big, important question. It bridges these literatures beautifully, IR. Uh, I didn't, I, you know, I'm one of these people who think IR is part of political science, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so different sub-disciplines of political science, IR, comparative politics, political behavior, and so on. And it's just this beautiful data in there and beautiful figures. So it's just, just a wonderful book. You should go and buy it. I hear it's on sale uh, outside afterwards. So this is, just go and read it for yourselves. Now, because I'm here, I wanted to ask some questions from the perspective where I come from as a scholar, which is the more the bottom up. So Mick talked about the, the geopolitics. I'll talk about public opinion. And I have three questions. One is, has there really been such a significant change in public opinion towards uh, international cooperation? Does it matter, or rather, when does it matter if there's been this shift? And is it primarily driven by, as you argue, uh, economic factors, lack of social protection. So you've already seen this figure. You make this very strong case and persuasive case in the book with, with great evidence, um, which is there's been this radical decline in voter support. Now, one question I had reading is as a scholar of public opinion that I was kind of missing citizens a bit because you use as a proxy, as you were saying, manifesto data. Now, there's very good reasons for that. Uh, it's because, of course, we don't have that kind of data uh, if, with the countries and the time frame you look at uh, on, on public survey data, and, and, and you're very transparent about it. But it did make me think, is supporting, let's say, a radical right party, is that primarily because of their, their position on the liberal international order? Sometimes, but I would argue often not. It might be you're pissed off with the economic situation, it might be immigration, we know that's been a massive driver, and sometimes it will be about their position and that, but often not. Often, actually, the liberal sort of international politics is not very salient. We've just had you know, six, seven years in British politics where it was all we could think about. But that is the unusual situation. We're now coming back to a situation where people care about the economy, people care about bread and butter issue and identity issues around immigration and so on. So saying party positions and voter support for parties equal voter support is not something that's necessarily always entirely aligned. So try to look at some survey evidence of have we seen, if we ask people, if we ask citizens directly on whether or not uh, they support uh, the liberal international order. You can't ask them that because they'll go, what? <laughs> like, what is the liberal international order? I mean, they wouldn't know. So uh, here are some questions, for example, on, um, uh, on, on international organizations. Do you think they have a right to enforce solutions to problems? Mm. Do you think countries should follow up international organization decisions despite disagreement? Does IO take too much power from national government? And what we see is, in line with your argument, is there has been a decline in the degree to which people accept that, but still very high levels of support, for mm. example, that IO should enforce decisions, um, and also that, uh, so, so it's, it's sort of a decline in the period that you're also looking at with the decline, but not as kind of as a radical slump as when we look at parties. Uh, the, the case, the IO that I like to study, being the EU, uh, we like to say, oh, there's been this increase in Euroscepticism, 
And partly that is because exactly as you are arguing, there's been a politicization of Euroscepticism. But when you just look at whether or not, let's leave Britain out of this, but in, in the EU, remaining member states, whether or not there has been a decline in support for the EU, it sort of bumped up and down. There was a lot of enthusiasm in the late 80s, but now it's back to uh, uh, very much where we were in the 70s. And uh, so this is a little funny story. Actually, the, the Commission stopped asking this in 2013 because it was so low because of the financial crisis. <laughs> and we were like, don't stop. It will come up again. And it has come up, and especially after Brexit, <laughs> because we've asked it in other surveys. So it's gone back up where it was. So really then, it's about parties. yeah. And these are, of course, incredibly important because they're the ones that form and constrain governments. Mm -hmm. This is another figure from your book that makes it look like there's been this complete erosion of mainstream parties. You're very honest in your description of the figure, but it's a little bit naughty that you're using two different scales for mainstream <laughs> parties and radicalizing parties. Very naughty. I mean, it does make the figure look a lot better than the equivalent figure of the same sort of data where you don't change, where you have them on the same scale. So what you're seeing is, yes, a fragmentation, but in a sense, if you look at that colored figure, what you're also seeing is just a lot of stability of the center. And as you're saying, seeing in your, in your party manifesto data, this center, these mainstream parties, the big party families, Christian Democrat and Conservative, Social Democrat, Liberal, and Greens also, are very pro the liberal international order. What we've seen is an increase in the radical right and the radical left, and they have they're more skeptical, but they're still, I think in your book, I looked in the appendix, it's an average radical right support of 3.7%. So it's, it's small, doesn't mean it's not important, but it's not a crumbling, it's not a collapse of mainstream support. So that then raises that, uh, the question is, when is it then that this public backlash matters in terms of constraining uh, uh, governments and in terms of really changing. And of course, with instances, I would argue a big thing is when the mainstream parties are captured by people who don't believe in it, like Trump and like, uh, um, uh, well, Boris Johnson and so on. So when you have mainstream parties captured uh, by, uh, by, by individuals or parties that don't believe in the liberal international order, then you're in trouble. Also, when it becomes so highly politicized, like we saw with Brexit, that even parties that might want to have a different position are forced to be responsive. And then these institutional opportunity structures, in other words, things like referendums, that force all of a sudden, even if there is a mainstream consensus, or we think the EU membership is broadly a good idea, or let's have a referendum for various reasons. And this is this uh, little post that Cameron is going all in. You know, it's a bit of a gamble, and he didn't win. Um, so, so just, you do write about it, but it made me really think about there's been a public backlash, but often it doesn't actually matter because you still have big mainstream consensus. So just a final slide, final question, and that is, you are both your sort of uh, your diagnosis that it's about lack of social protection and a welfare state, and uh, also that's part of your solution, this domestic renewal. And I hear I'm probably a bit biased. I will go back to the first poster. So I grew up in Denmark. It has a big welfare state. It spends a lot, and I'm telling you, the Danes do not like. You, you know, they have a certain skepticism towards the liberal uh, international order. Yeah, they broadly support it, but they have a long history of opposition towards NATO in terms of sort of a footnote policy in the 80s. Uh, have voted several times against the EU and so on. So that did make me think, studying the EU, that what we consistently see is that your skepticism is much higher in the sort of Scandinavian north than it is in the south. 
And it made me think, that doesn't mean the social protection thing argument you're making is not right. But sometimes, with very big international organizations, some nations, they hope that social protections will come from that international organization and not from their own country. So in other words, that is sort of a, the domestic renewal, is that also perhaps, partly, could it also be a renewal from the international organization? And I realize I'm very embedded in thinking about it in terms of the EU, that's obviously not all parts of the liberal international order is that far-reaching. But this thing that sometimes citizens might benchmark and think, my nation state is not delivering, so maybe the international order will. Vice versa, if my nation state is delivering, then, um, then I don't need that. So, and that's just finally, you know, there's not a lot about identity, politics, not a lot. You know, is it all economic? Sometimes we just like to be, feel that we somehow are empowered and we can feel more empowered by being governed closer to ourselves. I think that's why take back control and that as an argument, as a slogan, was more powerful than any economic arguments that you lose out on GDP. So in terms of this closing of the gap, is it all about domestic renewal, as you say, or is it also about IO saying, well, you can feel empowered through us, and we will also deliver some of the things you're missing. Mm. Uh, so that's my, my pitch to you of bringing the international into your solution. Thank you. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Great, thank you, Sarah. And now and I'll finally turn to Leslie Um Great, thank you. And thank you to both of you for writing the book um, so brilliantly. Um, and thank you to the two discussants for basically saying everything that needed to be said. So I can just add a few things and we can go directly to the audience. I mean that in all seriousness. A, a number of things that I've been sort of mulling over and trying to really grapple with that come out of the debate. And also, you know, the larger set of arguments, which are very considerable, um, that, you know, are, I would imagine the origins of how you chose to, to dive into this. Um, I, both of you really have, both of the discussants have gotten out many of the, the key issues. I guess, let me just say a couple of things, and Mick made this point, although you uncharacteristically didn't draw it out. Um, but Mick slid in the, you know, you introduce agency. And, and I would say that for me, this is, you know, one of the most beautiful things about the book is that you talk about leaders. Um, and, you know, it, it should be obvious that people matter. And we all know that in many of our theories, they kind of drop out because it's slightly harder to do. Um, but um, I've always been, a, I've always had a strong view about the, you know, those who say, oh, you know, America's on this trajectory and it's because of rising inequality and this and the other, all of which is true. But, you know, I like to say, but Donald Trump actually mattered, right? He took something that, yes, there was something that was there. He took it. He whipped it up. He turned people into enemies. He made race and white nationalism really, really foundational to rhetoric and discourse. He was critical in Charlottesville. He was critical in January 6th. 
These things didn't just happen because we had rising inequality from around 1993. Things don't just happen. Um, and so I like, and I think it's vitally important, the focus on leaders and agency mm -hmm. and not to be understated because of course it raises all sorts of questions and, and you got to some of those um, which are, you know, why do some of these leaders manage to get elected? It's not just because there's inequality and dissatisfaction with overreach and, and you know, institutions that ask too much of us and constrain our sovereignty. It's also because in the U.S. case, you know, we have, elect we have electoral systems that are biased towards a certain demographic that hasn't done well. And that, you know, we had a leader who was smart enough to play that up and to when the Democrats were going to, what was it, Nevada and Arizona, he was going to the places where he won the election. So all of those things that are vitally important. Peter knows this. I'm sure you do, too. I just happen to know Peter extremely well. Um, Peter knows this better than anybody, and, and I really profoundly appreciate the fact that you've talked about leaders and political parties. And, and long may that um, impact in your work carry on throughout the field. And please, nobody ever say it was you know determined and we're on this trajectory, what we do matters and how we design our mm. institutions fundamentally matters and it's why we can't only mm. sit in the academy and the LSC is brilliant about getting people to go beyond the academy and do something about it. Um, second comment, I guess, is a, um, a second thing I really liked was the fact that you, you, know, you take on Kagan early on and you say, you know, Kagan likes to go, the Europeans like this and, you know, the Americans are like this and you say, actually, the West was broadly similar on a number of things. I like that. Um, and I thought that was a, a really important point that I just wanted to mention because I think it, you know, the, the differences that, and we recognize them now, and I in particular, many people are focused on whether those divergences are about to come out again. But I like that you kind of show the commonality. Um, one of my questions is about the counterfactual. And it, I guess it's, and again, it's both of our, you know, it's been said in, in, in very sophisticated ways in the last 20 minutes. but. Um, you know, if, if the West had gotten this right, if they had not overreached, if they'd, you know, given more entitlements, been better on Social Security, gotten, you know, wages a little bit less out of whack, if the bonuses hadn't been so big, if we'd done all that, would, would things still be okay? I mean, will we still be supporting, would our people still be supporting the liberal world order? Um, and, and I guess my instinct is, mm, partly, but that there's, and this gets to, you know, Mick, <laughs> Mick's argument about geopolitics, but there was this other thing going on, and, you know, even if, and I'm going to talk about America because I know it better than I know Europe, um, and also because I'm always reluctant, I talk about Europe more when I'm in America, it's very intimidating <laughs> to talk about Europe around Europeans, um, but, uh, you know, um, but, um, you know, there, was, there were these other things going on, like, did America really want to be number two, or did it even want to have a a pacing challenger? Did it want to have a peer competitor? So no matter how well Americans in Michigan are doing in the rural parts of the state, they still want to go, we are number one, we are number one. And so the, you know, the thing that in some ways we got wrong was um, our theory of change. And this does link into your argument very fundamentally, right? Mm -hmm. Our theory of change was the responsible stakeholder thesis. It was the institutional overreach. It's that you, you, know the, you do the WTO, you bring China in, and it changes, and it plays ball, and it opens up its markets, and Americans get richer. Um, so in some ways, you know, we got the whole theory of change wrong, 
But even if the theory of change had been right, China would have also gotten richer and more powerful. And then there's the military side of what happens there. So I guess, you know, that there are a lot of counterfactual. The other counterfactual that I was wondering about was, and maybe your argument doesn't extend this far, I don't know, but if Americans have been, you know, happier and, and wealthier and more equal um, and more protected, would they have been uh, unchallenging uh, in their support of wars of choice? I mean, do you, it, does, is that part of your argument or not? Um, because, you know, the 1990s, are kind of overdetermined. In some ways, you know, the night that it was overdetermined that things were going to get more complicated. Mm. We have a, a change of power, a more leveling off of power. It's still, you know, two pretty big powers and then a lot beneath them. But we suddenly have a lot of choices to make. And, you know, an ideology that's sort of less obvious who you who you lodge it against. And so when I kind of think through the counterfactual, you know, Americans, maybe they were going to be dissatisfied about all sorts of things <laughs> in any case, and that was going to make it more complicated. Third point, and, and, and you really made it very well, and, you know, I, and I think we've, we've talked a little bit about this in various forms, but why, why do you not take on very much at the front the race argument? the argument about not just immigration, about identity, about being white or not being white. Um, where does that fit? And is that, you know, again, the counterfactual, if people, and, and I, you know, my answer to this is no. If people were in the current period, and I know, you know, you maybe have to go back and the answer would have been different, but in the current period, if you turn around to the average uh, working class white person in, Omaha, Nebraska, which is where I grew up, and you say, look, I'm going to increase your social security, I'm going to increase your pension, I'm going to you know, give you better health care and all these sorts of things, but the state legislature is going to be 50-50, you know, Latino, Mexican, Mexican-American, Hispanics, blacks. I still don't think that's going to work. I still think there's something much bigger going on. So I, I, you know, where does the race and identity politics sit in your argument? Is it derivative or superfluous? Is it just, you know, something that Trump used or is there something more fundamental going on? And I don't just think it's immigration and the southern border. And I think it's got to be at the front of our argument if we're going to talk about <coughs> the future um, of the liberal order. Um, lots more to say. It's, it's a tremendous book mm. and it's really important. And I'm impressed that you wrote it <laughs> during COVID. Thank you. I think we have a few minutes for, for Brian and Peter to respond, and we'll open it up to some questions. Well, Peter and I, while, while you were all talking, we were nudging each other who's going to take uh, what. So I will, uh, I'm going to respond to some of the points that uh, Sarah mentioned, and Peter is going to respond particularly to, I think, um, yeah. Uh, both Mick and, both Mick and yeah. Leslie, I think. The truth is that, uh, let me speak for, for, for both of us about the, the broader point, really extraordinary comments from everybody. and. Boy, could we have used that uh, while we were working on the, on the book. So I'm so grateful, but also, uh, yeah, I have a, 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 it's a bittersweet feeling that you know you can't, particularly in COVID times, it's hard to get this kind of uh, interaction. So it's, it's, it's very helpful, the, the comments that you made, and we appreciate the praise uh, as well. But it, I mean, really wonderful uh, uh, comments. So Sarah, you, you mentioned a bunch of things that are, that are some of the things that are, are quite fundamental, and I'm just going to mention a, a couple of them. 
Um, one of them is about the idea that um, if, you, if you want to look at mainstream uh, decline and mainstream party change, it's true that if you put two axes, as you say, we were not to, we made very clear that we were doing that to try and emphasize the year-on-year -year change, right? We, we said we were being naughty, so um, for what it's <laughs> worth. And, and um, the more important thing is, is to recognize that those changes were coming together with really important changes in the party position taking of, of the party. So it's not just the votes and the strength of a party, it's the fact that indeed a lot of the mainstream conservative parties, like the Republican Party, really took a, took a, a deep dive when it came to, to, to these kinds of issues. So in the end, it's the positioning of the parties that constitutes the decline of the vital center for us, not just the, the electoral share of the parties. Um, and the point you make about how, how important could the social, social economic stuff be to what voters do, this gets at a really fundamental issue that Leslie is also touching on, um, which, um, about, which we, about which we can say two things. One is that um, the way we dealt with this is to try to make an argument about, at the margin, the role of this, these socioeconomic factors, knowing that we were going to be abstracting from this really important set of conditions. So we just sort of control for some of these things in the party platforms. But if you were to ask us, what matters more, more for a given party, given year, or for that matter, the last five years in a place like uh, the UK or the US, is it the social economic stuff or is it the culture stuff? I, the truth is we don't really know. It's more that we want to emphasize this, this, this socioeconomic compact as part of our story. And to be honest, we would, we would do well to, to try to explore that further for the re exactly the reasons that you, you both uh, really emphasize. Lots more to say, but really extraordinary uh, comments. Peter. Yeah, well, so let me just uh, echo, Brian, this is a terrific set of comments. and. Um, we could have used some of this input earlier, but um, um, <laughs> <That's> COVID. <laughs> I, I want to, uh, let me start with Leslie's comment about um, race and identity, um, uh, which is no doubt part of the story um, in the U.S., but not only the U.S. Um, so we made a very conscious decision early in this project. I remember sitting with Brian pre-COVID in Amsterdam um, to rule out in the analysis immigration, and um, which, if you're, you know, kind of, uh, and and race, and to see whether or not we could tell this story, mm. tell this story, focusing on, you know. Uh, economic considerations and particularly whether we could tell the story looking at trade and um, support or opposition to to trade and institutionalized cooperation and where you know parties and voters stood on that and it's you know what I think in the process of doing the research and this really goes to the agency question um, I think what certainly I learned um, from doing it, is that um, those issues really mattered that you're raising. But they mattered because some of those issues existed already. I mean, radical right parties were already playing the immigration card in Europe, certainly mm -hmm. Le Pen and, uh, you know, the National the Front National back then and, um, you know, the Austrian Freedom Party. What 
if you go back to the 80s and the 90, early 90s, what changes in the 90s is that they grab on to trade, which they were all laissez-faire parties, mm. and they changed their position. And what they did in doing that also is created one hell of a cocktail. Now, you know, political cocktail, uh, a Molotov cocktail, you know, that I think it does not fully, you know, its effect I don't think is fully realized until maybe 2010 in this country where, you know, Farage really runs with it. And then in 2016 in, in the United States. So it's, I mean, it's, the entrepreneurship or the agency involved was fusing those issues. But what we tried to do was see if we could get most of that story starting with, with trade. On the counterfactual question about China, I mean, who knows? <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, but there were voices, Ooh. lonely voices. You know, Danny, Danny Roderick was dismissed. Mm. Danny was right, but Danny was dismissed as a yeah, Cassandra, yeah. you know, and, um, um, and, but Danny's position wasn't on China. There were people no, that no. were saying, the United States, Germany, they're going too fast, you know, too far, and that China's not going to behave the way that, you know, China's not going to become the stakeholder that you want, and so you're not going to get those kind of returns. And the consequences are you're going to hollow out your own kind of, uh, you know, political economy in the process. So you're going to come up short-handed internationally, and you're going to pay a price domestically. <coughs> the problem is, is those voices were fairly fringe. And the question yeah. that you have to ask is why. Yeah. And I think the real story in that, you know, in and I feel like I really learned this in, in, in working on this book, the big move is not the center-right politicians who begin moving in the, it's important in the 1980s of Reagan and Thatcher. It's when the center-left politicians, the Clintons, the Blairs, the Schroders, the Jospin, that where they buy into the same thing, you get a consolidation around globalization and a willingness to relax social protection, mm -hmm. not to gut it, but to loosen it. it. So what happens with social protection is it flattens, and so it doesn't keep pace with hyper-globalization, when globalization really takes off in the 1990s, either in the form of market liberalization and mm -hmm. trade liberalization, or the commitment really to supranationalism, WTO being the most obvious example, but institutional cooperation across a wide spectrum. I mean, when you look at the data, the thing just takes off in the 1990s. Mm. You know, I mean, you can begin to see the trend in the late 80s, but finally, let me just say quickly, on the China question, or on the non-alignment question, Mick, that you raise. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of with you, but I'm not fully, I'm not, I'm not quite there. I mean, I don't, I don't see this as a block yet. I'm not convinced that non-aligned countries, whether you take like an in India, you know, that, I mean, I don't see them aligning with this um, illiberal block of China and Russia. I see them trying to play both sides off one another. 
and if anything. And in India's case, there's huge, and, and in other countries' cases, huge incentives in balancing against China. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that I see it as, as totally formed. And I also, I'm, I'm, there's part of me that is not convinced that the China threat is totally baked in in the West. I mean, you know, Macron got hammered for his comments on Taiwan, but what they reflected, Macron said stuff that a lot of other Europeans believe um, but don't want to say. But I think the thing is, is what it underscored was the fracturing around this question in Europe. And I will note, I mean, a really interesting speech um, was Jake Sullivan's. I guess it was last week at the Brookings Institution. The United States is beginning to backpedal its position on China. He did, um, you know, and um, Secretary of Treasury, she, she did as well before, starting to talk about not decoupling, but de-risking, picking up the European sign. So I think, I, I, I think it's perhaps a little bit more, I, I guess where I come down, mm -hmm. who knows, but it's a little bit more fluid. I hope you're right. <laughs> Great. Uh, thanks, Peter. Um, we're now going to have a chance to turn to the audience in, the, in person and online. Um, if you can, if you can raise your hand, and I will select questions in rounds. And for the online audience, if you could please use the online Q&A function, please do your best to keep your questions short, and we'll try to take as many as possible. And please, if you could, state your name and your affiliation, and the stewards will go around the room uh, and, and, and pick up questions. Please. There's one in the middle, and there's one in the upper middle. Hi, thank you very much for your discussion. That was really fantastic to hear. Uh, I'm Sam Hadfield with the Adam Smith Institute. I just had a question surrounding the kind of future that you see for the international liberal order. Uh, so naturally you talk about this decline of the liberal order from uh, the Cold War. I'm wondering if you see climate change taking the place of the bogeyman to reestablish this motivation for uh, the liberal order, or if it has to be kind of a human actor that forces that motivation. Fantastic. We'll take uh, one in the way back, and then there's online questions in the front. So, Hi, uh, I'm Rohan Mukherjee. I teach in the IR department. Uh, I'm obliged to say this. Is a, no, it's, it's a really a great book. So, congratulations. <laughs> um, um, oh, I, uh, just a quick shout out to LSE. I think Susan Strange in 1986 wrote Casino Capitalism, which actually outlined a lot of the problems yeah. that Danny Roderick later pointed out, right? Sure. So, um, but her, interestingly, her solution was for greater American leadership and more regulation uh, to solve those problems. And that's sort of the core of my question, which is, for better or worse, the liberal international order is often conf conflated or confused with US foreign policy. And to pick up on Leslie's point, like how much of the 90s was overdetermined by not just um, you know, the vast uptake in multilateral security interventions through the UN pushed by the US, mm. uh, the US refusal to join the Kyoto Protocol, the US refusal to sign the Rome Statute of the ICC, the International Criminal Court. So when countries, even in Europe, look at the United States, it doesn't seem to be following the same tenets of the liberal order that it wants everyone else to follow. And so how much of the lack of support both in Europe but also in the global south is a function of the US inability to be liberal, orderly, or rules-based. Thanks. 
Hi, um, just to say we have more than 160 people watching online. So this question comes from Jiaqian Shi from Tulane University, who writes, in the US case, as inequality is getting worse, economic factors seem to play a less distinct role in impacting the public voting behavior as voters are becoming more aligned with political cues corresponding to their own socioeconomic status. With the escalation of the culture war that is involving more foreign policy issues, such as the controversy over the ban on TikTok, is it possible that cultural factors would become a more important determinant of US foreign policy than economic factors? Thank you. Okay. So maybe we can also try to open this up. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, I'm happy to take a stab at, um, I'm gonna go with the climate change question. Yeah, go ahead. First. <laughs> Easy one. Yeah. <laughs> the, the problem is, it's the right point, but it's not an easy sale. That's mm. what we're seeing. So, and I, you know, and I, I've, I've had this conversation with, with other people, and, and you can make the, the argument that having the face of Xi Jinping, you know, or Vladimir Putin is, you know, for people is kind of more um, front and center, and it's also, you know, um, I mean, people have a, a, um, a higher, let's say, the question here is how high is the future discount rate? So, you know, people that, the, the climate threat, the problem is there's too many people that don't think it's proximate, that it's right here. They, maybe they understand that it's existential and it's in your face. And I think that, you know, those of us who think that's a, a, a real, uh, a, a a vehicle, uh, both an important challenge to meet, and a vehicle for mobilizing domestic support need to do a better job than we're, we're doing. But I think this is, it's the right way to think about it. Is there some kind of substitution for the role that the Soviet challenge posed during the Cold War? Having said that, I want to just say one last thing about the Soviet challenge. The Soviet challenge, and this is, I, I, I'm often frustrated when I hear the analogies between the China threat and the Soviet threat. <laughs> the, the Soviet challenge was a rather unique one um, in that <clears throat> to meet it, Western leaders, US leaders, European leaders, were convinced from the get-go, you can see this in speeches from Dean Acheson and others, from the get-go, that they had to prove that democratic capitalism could deliver the goods, that it was as every bit as good as communism, right? That communism wasn't the worker's paradise. And what that did was it incentivized them to invest in social protection, social democracy, the welfare state. And, um, and, and, and in fact, and so as a result, when the Soviet Union disappears, that loosens up. But the, 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 there's a false equivalence, I think, that's being drawn between the China challenge and that, but perhaps not between the climate challenge and, that, and, and the Soviet challenge. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, let me pick up on that very. No, well, I will come back to you. I'll be quick. On the on the, uh, I I'll, I'll be blunt. I think the China challenge is actually much greater than the Soviet Union, uh, not in the traditional sense of threat, uh, as I, as understood. You know, in the Cold War, going back to 
NSC 68 and George Kennan and all the rest of it. It's not like that. But it, it seems to be a much greater challenge. I, I use the word challenge, no, it's not threat. Mm -hmm. I know we're online. Um, two reasons. One is uh, the Soviet Union didn't have any money. I mean, China is now the second largest economy in the world with the, G, with the you know, with the, with the 16 or 17, you know. You know, with that amount of material resources, which the Soviet Union never had, never had. You know, that therefore gives to, 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 to a rising power a genuine material basis for altering and reshaping the world order in ways that the Soviet Union could challenge it and threaten it, if you like, but not in the way that China can. The other thing is, of course, what makes it doubly problematic is the Western capitalist world is dependent on China. You know, I mean, how did we get out of the 2008 crisis? After all, China was the engine of growth when the United States and the EU were going down the, going down the Swanee. Um, how many of our Western industrialist corporations, you know, gagged to get back into the China market post-COVID, you know. Nobody was gagging to get into the Soviet Union with money. You know, quite, quite the opposite. I'm an old Sovietologist, I remember. So I, I think in some odd way, but not, not understood in the Cold War way, but China, the China chain may actually be much more difficult for the West, for the West to, to manage than, than was the Soviet Union, around which you could create a kind of a simple consensus, really, you know. Um, the, the other thing, Peter, just come back on your point, and, and I'll then let, let my colleagues follow, follow up, on the question of what I, what I argued at the very end of my point about the, the if you like, the, the China-Russia axis, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter. Um, I've been writing about this, unfortunately, for the last few years, and I'm trying to get a book out on this as well. Yeah, quite, thank you. <laughs> Nobody from Polity Press here, I hope. Um, <laughs> It's true. It's, what I argued for, it's not a block in the sense of a block. It's not like Soviet block or, you know, the Sino-Chinese uh, block in the 1950s, you know, closely ideologically bound together. But there are, there's a whole range of issues which brings together some very disparate kind of states. Mm -hmm. I mean, what unites Lula, who I kind of admire in many ways, but what, what unites Lula with China? It's not just that he wants a lot of business in China. He took 245 businessmen to, to Beijing, by the way. It is also, there's a kind of view of the world. The view of the world, and it gets back to the point that our friend made in the middle about the US. You know, the US has too much power. The US screwed up in uh, Iraq. US exploits its power, its hegemonism. It, it uses its dollar power to make sure that all foreigners pay for our problems. You know, we, we, don't, we never get into debt because you, got, you poor suckers out there have got to pick up the tab. You can't, you can't let us go down the swine. You know, so there's lots of things, you know, but the, even the memories of the Cold War, you know, do play a role in the way that large numbers of what we call non-aligned countries or part of the NAM, as we used to call it, the Third World, as it used to be called, and now the Global South, as it's called. No, not, not great terms in themselves, I, I agree. But you know, they kind of, these guys kind of look back and say, well, who helped liberate us from apartheid? The, why, why is anybody so surprised by what the South African ANC government says? Or what do guys, guys say in some South American countries? You know? And this is why they kind of had, a, let me put it nicely, an ambiguity <laughs> about, about the war in, in Ukraine. We simply, I think we've got to face up to it. I don't, I don't call it a block. It's not like an alliance kind of block. But it is there, it is real, and I think it is a... Very serious. I'm glad finally Susan Strange was mentioned. 
Great, great. LSE, of course. Goes without saying. <laughs> uh, Susan's answer, by the way, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm being unfair on Susan Strange, was fantastic. I think her, her view about how the world should be run is that America should keep running it. Yeah. I mean, she was very keen on US hegemony. You know, I mean, all these people talk about US decline, and remember, she annoyed the hell out of people by supposing it's going to decline. And her point was about the, the US is central, absolutely central to this liberal order. And without the US playing the kind of role which historically it has played, there is no order. I mean, that was her point. And I think, again, I'm not sure that's the argument you make in your book, but I think it's one that Susan herself would want to see given greater prominence. And you're going to quote Susan Strange, aren't you? I, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sneaky. Reads his own because, book. How about that? Yeah. Because chapter three, Roots of Insolvency, yeah. opens with Susan Strange. Yeah, there you go. We saw it coming. You, so oh. Danny Roderick wasn't alone. Oh, okay. Susan at LSE saw it. And, uh, and I mean, there was a great yeah. piece by yeah. her where she concludes yeah. that, um, you know, um, that democracies Tool thought is being given to the headlong pursuit of trade liberalization, cross-border investment, multilateral governance, um, yeah. and too little thought being given to protecting the vulnerable in society. Yeah, and she yeah. concludes there needs to be a measure. We need to restore a measure of social justice denied by the market. And I think so. Yeah. She was writing this in the late 1990s, so she saw what was you. unfolding. Yeah at the time, in real time. It's only kind of part of the issue that you've raised. I don't disagree with, that, with everything Mick just said in response to you. Yeah. I mean, I'll just address two points if I could. Um, first one on US exceptionalism. I mean, this, the US has always been exceptional, right, since the start of the uh, post-war hegemony project. The, the notion that there was ever a liberal international order is a misnomer, right? It was always a Western order, and the institutions were always club goods rather than public goods. And the U.S. was always prone to abuse these for its own uh, interest when, when these interests became intense in nature. I think the problem for the U.S. in the 90s was that these interests became so intense and the abuse became so, so, so systemic, so prevalent, that it gave rise to this backlash. And we're talking about mm -hmm. the 1990s Asian financial crisis as a high point of sort of Western hubris, right? Uh, the Committee to Save the World, if you recall the Time Magazine uh, picture with uh, the US leading officials on the front. So that's always been there. And I think the problem for, for the Western order now is not to try to bring China and its order in, but to offer a compelling alternative vision to China, one that is much more inclusive uh, to, to, the, to the ideas uh, of those uh, participants in the Global South that it needs to bring on board. The online participant, if I could speak to this, I mean, Peter knows my views on this because we, we, we share the same floor in, in the center building, so we took an opportunity to walk down a couple doors. When Peter was speaking about this, um, he didn't use this language, but this was reminded me of Sherry Behrman's point about the center left, that the center left essentially capitulates on the politics of redistribution to the center right's preferences, more or less. I mean, there's some differentiation. And all that's left for the center left to offer is the politics of recognition, identity politics. If, if you will. And it offers this recipe in a way that is unconvincing to most Western voters and mm. continues to be, in, in my view, uh, one of the reasons why the central left failed in, in, in successive elections in, in, in many cases. One of the reasons why you see uh, you know, Biden being successful in 2022 and hopefully in 2024 mm -hmm. and Starmer being successful in this country 
is because they have put a lid on, or at least diminished, these politics of recognition in, in terms of their major push. It's about butter, it's about bread, it's not about who you are. The problem for the center left is if people like yourselves, the younger people in the audience, those appeals don't, may not necessarily resonate with you in the ways that the center left hopes, right? So many of the 1835s in this room, online and elsewhere, are very much motivated by these appeals, appeals to identity. But what that means, if you believe in that, then you actually have to turn out to vote 2024 <laughs> in, in my country of origin, my country of residence, and elsewhere, if you want to actually have meaningful, meaningful change. Because the problem is the politics of identity are simply not persuasive enough for the vast majority of the electorate to actually do turn out, and those that do tend to move in that, in that direction. Um, so culture wars is important. I'll also throw out one more term before we kick it back to the audience. Deserving this heuristics. Yeah. To me, this is absolutely crucial. It's crucial in terms of the welfare state domestically. Who do you think actually benefits or should get benefits? And it's crucial to the international order, right? The Eurozone is ridden by these in terms of you know, desert, southern sinners and virtuous northerners uh, between the white nationalists who, when Leslie was speaking about social security in Nebraska, when you ask somebody about that, you say, you support Social Security in America, they say, absolutely, I support that. And the reason why ethnographic researchers tell us is because when you ask someone in Nebraska about Social Security, they, they view an older white pensioner, right? So they're more willing to support that. The problem is when you talk about welfare, redistribution, and targeted assistance, they start to not see themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's the deservedness heuristics that are actually really crucial in a lot of this, both the international and uh, the domestic level. So that was my sort of two. Maybe I'll just add something. I'll add something very, very quickly. One is I agree with you on the identity politics, but I'm not sure that we're seeing Biden um, profit from his putting a lid on identity politics. His approval rating is extremely low, and I think a lot of you know people might argue that he's profiting from the fact that there's the Democrats are afraid of fielding another candidate because they don't want to lose to the would-be potential of Donald Trump. So, you know, it, instinctively I agree with you, but I don't, I don't see evidence that that's actually leading to his um, increased popularity in this particular moment. I wanted to say just a quick comment on the, the hypocrisy point, which I think is the good one. And, you know, it's, it's, we're always trying to figure out, does America's hypocrisy alienate others? I mean, it certainly, you know, annoys people. But does it, I mean, and it's, it's blatantly obvious and all the rest of it, but it, does it really have a categorical impact on behavior and under what conditions does it change behavior and I guess the one thing I would say is you know the difference between America and other major powers I don't mean Europe I mean like China you know big countries China India etc is that they don't pretend like they're trying to save the world right but would they would they accept would they accept themselves from the rules of institutions like the World Trade Organization and the International Criminal Court, uh, yes, right? So it's not just that America is uniquely full of hypocrisy, it's just a really powerful country on most conventional measures of material power. Mm -hmm. And so like most really powerful countries, it doesn't think it should always have to play by rules that don't benefit it. So I don't think it's actually all that exceptional except for the fact that it makes these big claims that other major powers don't, or at least I think it's worth considering that as a hypothesis, which isn't to say that it doesn't clearly, very seriously alienate people, but it's not clear you know, what effect that has. And, and I know Mick feels this, but that story you just told about the US and everything, you kind of left out the last 
Did 14 I? months. Did I? Which month? The last 14 months when you were saying, you know, yes, people are frustrated about it. But you left out, you left out the last 14 months where basically they're, they're sort of going, come on, America, save us, help us no, defend no, Ukraine, no. right? The, the other story is when push comes to shove and there is a really big challenge to the most fundamental norm in the international system, people still look across the Well, I actually did make right? that point because I, my, my point was about U.S. Germany and yeah. Susan Strange's yeah, original Yeah, but point. where you got to in the well, end, if you don't get, if you don't get it, 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 it may be uncomfortable for some people to think about this, but, it, you know, it, I kind of think Susan got, she was honest enough and open enough to say that if you don't have U.S. leadership and the U.S. and Germany doing things, then lots of things either don't get done or don't get done very well. And I think, it's, I think the Ukraine war is an absolute perfect illustration of that, that point you're making. Yeah. Without the okay. U.S., I mean, who knows what would have happened if, Given where we were after Afghanistan, so I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally along with you on that one. Yeah, no disagreement. I think we have time for at least. A, there's definitely two, Ooh, three question questions. Perhaps. Where are our stewards? Uh, stewards. Um, let's have this one on the right, the one on the left, and then one more from the online, if we could. So left, and then right, and then All over, front yeah. again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's always the person with the green jumper. Yeah, this person on the right closest to the steward. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm a student in the Department of International Relations. Uh, I actually have a follow-up question, like, kind of to uh, the uh, kind of response by uh, Dr. Vijamui on the uh, role that the war in Ukraine is perhaps playing, kind of looking forward. I know the uh, book is... I, I haven't read the book, but I assume, based on the discussion so far, that the book is not directly covering it. Because it seems that, uh, if anything, uh, the war in Ukraine has accelerated this trend, whereas your response kind of would have assumed that maybe this could have been a turning point. But uh, my question is then would be, could it be that a lot of uh, non-Western countries see the war in Ukraine, especially in comparison to the war in Iraq, and said, mm. so the US uh, and the UK uh, invaded Iraq more or less unprovoked, where complete havoc, nothing happened to them. Russia is invading Ukraine, more or less unprovoked, but the entire sanction hammer of the Western world comes onto them. Isn't that, like, couldn't that be perceived as farther proof, if you will, uh, for those countries that there is a double standard and that the rules of the so-called rule-based world order don't apply equally, and therefore then accelerate this trend? Great, thank you. And then on the, on the left? Hello. Yeah. Uh, I'm a recent graduate of the LSE. I did uh, global politics and I'm currently with the uh, Economist Group, although not representing views, of course. Um, <laughs> I, I love the argument. I think it's great that it's grounded in such a long uh, sort of analysis spanning 70 years of how international relations and domestic politics interplay. But I'm wondering whether you might be overlooking something in this. Um, yes, looking at 70 sure. years grounds it very well, but it might also um, provide the sort of gap that the meaning of globalism has changed uh, in the course of these 70 years. Mm -hmm. To me, it seems that throughout the Cold War, globalism and what the liberal international order meant is very different from what it means today, and it's probably even changed in the past 15 years itself. So given that one of your main variables is looking at manifestos, do you take into account the way in which the meaning of the subject itself has changed in the 70 years that you, uh, that you studied? 
Thanks. Great question. And then the last one from the online audience, please. Thank you. So this question comes from uh, Dorison Lopez uh, from the Federal University of Minas Gerais in Brazil, who asks, what's the path in, in all this in this analysis for democracies from the global south? What was the last question? What was, what's the path for democracies in the global south and all of this? Yeah. Okay. So Brian will answer that last question. <laughs> <laughs> Brian does democracy, Peter does the economics. And I'll have you just, uh, I'll, let me just quickly say yeah, something you go about ahead. the first two, or Sarah, you yes, go, go ahead. But just on the first question on, on Ukraine, certainly yeah. the evidence we have from Europe is that it, I think, works along this, the lines, your argument would suggest that mm. it's a, uh, it's an external threat, and that means that support for what we think of as the liberal international order has mm. increased, mm. you know, because all of a sudden there is an external threat, and we know we have to go to, and, and so both sort of survey evidence, but also experiments, if we remind people there's a war uh, in Ukraine, then they support the EU more, they support, they're also more pro-American, exactly, mm. you know, they want to be saved, as you were suggesting, so I think, I mean, not that it's a good thing, but from from the perspective in the West of public support for the liberal world order, having uh, that conflict with Russia helps. So I would, um, you know, I would certainly agree with that up to uh, to a point. I mean, I think um, uh, because it, you know public opinion polls do show that, but it's worth remembering in the last year alone that anti-globalists have. Uh, Gain, uh, you know, had considerable success in Italy. Um, they came awfully close in France, um, and they had a considerable success in Sweden. And so, to go to the point, I don't think. I think one thing that has concerned me about, especially early on, the kind of uh, there were a lot of people who, you know, said, you know, this is going to change everything and. Um, you, you know, the, the liberal order is back. Um, I, I think the point and maybe the takeaway from, uh, I think one of the takeaways from our book is that it's not enough. And, um, and I think the proof is already kind of in, in the pudding. The question over here, which is a very good question, former student, um, <laughs> is, um, is um, the answer to your question is yes. Um, and, but it's difficult, it has to be done. The indicators themselves don't lend themselves to easily to the idea that globalization and the meaning of it changed in the 1990s. I mean, you can look at, there's, you know, you can look at kind of the rate and the intensity. But I think the point that you're getting at, which we do talk about a lot in the book, is that during the Cold War, globalism, globalization was managed. It was mediated, in a sense, by the welfare state and by social protection. And, the pro and so we're, our argument is not against globalization. It's what happens you know, starting really in the 90s is it becomes unmediated globalization. And so in that sense, I think what you're tapping on is there's a kind of qualitative change in it, right? And that people felt it, you know, in a, in a real way. Yeah. 
Final marks from Brian. Yeah. yeah so, um, the very difficult uh, question from online about what the what the message is or what the the consequences, what the um, yeah the implications would be for for the global south generally. But I th I'm taking this as also a question about democratic form and contestation in in, in the, the global south. So in some ways, that question um, I think dovetails with a number of the points that have been made and some of the questions about possible hypocrisy, about what it really means for you know, liberal internationalism to gain traction. And I think it's a, a good place, and maybe this is a good place for us to end, <laughs> if, I, if I might say so myself, to, to, um, to point out that when, when we're looking at uh, liberal internationalism, we go out of our way in the beginning of the book and, um, and at the end of the book to, to sort of emphasize that we know that uh, when it comes to this sort of sanctimoniousness that Leslie rightly pointed out as being what really plugs people in and, and provokes the kind of hostility and maybe backlash to, against uh, people who sing the praises of liberal internationalism, or at least people who want to accuse, and I think rightly so, the US for being somewhat hypocritical on liberal internationalist principles. Um, we are fully aware of that and a big part of our, our project is to try to look at measures of the liberal international project that are uh, real, that are about a, a, a meaningful embrace of the partnership with power um, that we would associate with a, with a better version of liberal internationalism. And our own judgment is that, that we see indeed that the support for that project, even if you measure it in these, these quite narrowly gauged ways, you see that there's, um, you know, this declining support for that uh, in a way that we find uh, concerning. And we see that there's somewhat declining support for Western leadership and the international organizations. And by the way, that's not just uh, countries not wanting, non-Western countries, the global south, not wanting to support what the U.S. is pushing and selling in the U.N. General Assembly and these various international organizations. It's what the Europeans are doing. And they have also plenty of hypocrisy on their hands in a way, or certainly an ugly history. Um, but the real point is that we are fully aware that that's something that requires and complicates these politics. Our emphasis is on the domestic, political, economic hollowing out of support. But we know that even if that support is uh, uh, refashioned, there's a long road to hoe if you want to actually pursue the real meaning of, of liberal internationalism. Um, uh, but we think that, that that domestic political economic challenge is, is just really a crucial, minimum, necessary step in that direction. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Peter. Thank you all to my panelists for joining us. Thank you all for, for being in attendance this evening. Um, if you'd like to purchase a copy of Geopolitics and Democracy, you can scan the QR code on the way out. I'm told there's a considerable discount off the book, so uh, that would be great, uh, uh, something to read on the way home in the evening. Thank you much for their speakers. Thank you yeah. to the audience, both Don't online sure. and in person, for joining us. Have a good evening. Thanks yes. a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.